Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Uh, so I'm going to be reading the Bible readings for this morning. Uh, the first one is from Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 to 7. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 20. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people put, pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Thanks for reading, Izzy, and good morning, everyone. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Simon. People call me Jacko, uh, pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. It's nice to see you all this morning. If you've been tempted to close your Bible or your app or whatever it is, do open that back up to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Uh, as we um, continue to work our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're at week nine, uh, pausing this coming week or thereabouts for Easter, and then possibly picking up one more week in the Sermon on the Mount before we then jump into a new series and then into the book of Revelation um, as of the 22nd of May, should the Lord tarry. Uh, that's what we'll be doing, so hang on to your hats for that. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, though, as I've been saying, the Sermon on the Mount is without doubt the most famous collection of Jesus' 
teachings. And I argued last week that the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words, are probably the most influential ethical teaching in the history of the Western world. In just 2,000 words, 2,000 words pretty much in the original Greek and 2,000 words in our English, in our Bibles, Jesus casts the vision of the good life, of the blessed life, of the happy life, a life that participates in the mind of the creator and so fulfills our purpose as his creatures. And I hope if you've been here for most of the series in the Sermon on the Mount, I hope you haven't just sort of seen it as this list of like do's and don'ts or that Jesus is just painting this kind of mere morality, but rather he's laying down for us this marvellous vision of life that opens up all kinds of fresh opportunities for the social order and for us as individuals living in his world. We've seen, right, over the course of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus' vision for his world involves, and his people involves, meekness, mercy, peacemaking, sexual integrity, truth-telling, love of enemies, turning the other cheek, charity for the poor, simplicity in prayer, shunning of religious hypocrisy, and keeping our distance from worldly materialism. And it's with this massive vision that Jesus has cast in chapters five and six, he begins to kind of land the plane in chapter seven. Last week, as we opened up chapter seven, I suggested that in this, in this little second, in this last chapter, Jesus doesn't sort of add any new ethical items, right? When he said last week, right, do not judge lest you be judged or, you know, make sure you remove the plank from your eye before you deal with the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Rather, as he opens up chapter seven, or as we have it in our Bibles, he's basically showing us as believers what the proper posture is for a follower of Jesus, someone who's truly come to understand Jesus' ethical vision. See, if you've genuinely understood the teaching of Jesus, all of its truth and beauty and relevance, you will not, we will not condemn other people who don't live by that vision. We'll find ways, just like Jesus did, to love and respect other sinners just as we find ways to love and respect ourselves, yeah? Despite our many foibles and flaws. That was last week. This week, Jesus continues to bring the Sermon on the Mount to a close, and I think by answering a crucial question. How on earth do we obey this stuff? How on earth do we do it? This vision, right, of the happy life, the blessed life, The good life is just huge and amazing and challenging. How do we actually live it out? How do we practice it? Well, I think in this little section we're looking at this morning, verses 7 through to 20, I think we get three keys as to how to live out Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to think about each of the keys in turn, Um, but it seems to me that Jesus is offering us three keys, three kind of challenges, each which are introduced by a lead verb in the imperative mood, right? If you're a nerdy person and you like those sorts of things. Um, Verse 7, ask. Verse 13, enter. Verse 15, watch out. 
These are the three banners, if you like, for this talk, and they look to me like three keys to help us obey the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to take them in turn. Um, Here are the following headings. You've got them there. Ask for obedience. Accept unpopularity. Be careful who you listen to. Okay? If you're a note taker, there you go. Ask for obedience. Accept unpopularity. Be careful who you listen to. Okay, first one, ask for obedience. Have a look with me. Verse seven and following, this first paragraph. Verse seven, ask, says Jesus, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The the emphasis here of Jesus is on the good gifts, on the Father's goodness, on merely asking and receiving. And it's such an important theme that has been repeated over and over and over again these past two months. The Sermon on the Mount insists that you don't get into God's good books by doing the Sermon on the Mount. The lead theme of the Sermon on the Mount, that this life that Jesus offers us is a gift. You remember, um, I don't know if you remember this, uh, I know that some people actually are seeking to memorise the Beatitudes, you know, the first eight statements of the Sermon on the Mount. All praise to you. I'm not really good at memorising scripture, but go for it. But you know, um, there's some out there who are doing it. Um, But I don't know if you remember, I'm pretty sure most of us remember the first of the Beatitudes, right? The first blessing statement of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus opens this amazing message and there's these people sitting on the hillside outside of Galilee and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I've said it repeatedly in the series, right? This opening line, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God, heaven, is the key to the whole thing. The person who can be confident that they have the kingdom of God is not the person who thinks they're morally rich already. The person who knows they're poor, the person who looks at their own spirit, their inner self before God, and knows they're morally bankrupt, out of credit, that they need God's mercy and grace. They are the ones for whom the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's really amazing, yeah, this incredible, most influential ethical teaching in all of history begins by asking us to recognise our ethical bankruptcy. It's like the banner over everything in the Sermon on the Mount. We never move beyond remembering that we are poor in spirit and utterly dependent on God's good gift of grace. Now our verses, although these verses here come, you know, many verses later and a bunch of chapters later, emphasize pretty much the same thing, the nature of the gift, but with a different and crucial accent that I want us to observe. We are to ask, seek, and knock to receive the good gifts of the Father, but here the gift is not entering the kingdom, here the gift is living for the kingdom. 
Verse 12's the key. I left it out um, deliberately as we read it through, but I want you to zero in the logical pivot between verse 11 and verse 12 and to see what Jesus is talking about. So verse 11 ends, follow with me, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And we're thinking, what good gifts? Like what good gifts to those who ask him? Answer, verse 12. So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the whole law and the prophets. See, verse 12 could read just like an isolated statement, simply summarizing the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. And at one sense, it is a lovely summary of the Sermon on the Mount, which we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. You And I've said this before, right? We find this idea, do unto others as you would do unto yourself, we find this in no other writer or contemporary speaker, right? East or West. No one else taught the golden rule. We find the silver rule everywhere. Do not do unto others what you do not want them to do to you, yeah? But as far as we know, only Jesus said, do to others the positive good that you'd like people to do to you. But notice how verse 12 begins. It begins with a so or a therefore. See it, it's there in the, in the original language, it's there in our English translations. Makes it clear that verse 12 is actually the punchline to the gift giving bit. This is the logic I want us to spawn. It's the punchline of the ask, seek, knock for the good gifts of the Father. We are in other words, to ask for this life of doing unto others as we would have others do to us. And given that God is a better gift than any human parent, he will give us the gift of living this life of the Sermon on the Mount. He will give it to us, the ability, the power to pull it off. Now, it may sound really weird, right, to speak of our obedience, like our doing, as God's gift, but actually the New Testament teaches this absolutely everywhere. It's not a weird thing just here. Think back a few weeks ago to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught the Lord's Prayer, right? We ask in the Lord's Prayer, what do we ask? Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Sounds like you've got to depend on the Lord to avoid temptation and to avoid doing evil. Um, here's the Apostle Paul saying the same thing. I think it's here. There we go. Here's the Apostle Paul saying the same thing in his letter to the Philippians. Bunch of Christians, first century, living for Jesus. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We are to work out our salvation. We are to work out our obedience, but always knowing that God is working in us by his spirit, even to will and to do good. And if this was a different kind of talk, and if we had more time, I'd show you how ever since Jesus kind of mentioned these words and and Paul wrote down these things, calling us to work out our salvation and to ask God to help us to obey his word, ever since then, and particularly since the Reformation of the 1500s, reformers and church leaders have composed liturgies and 
all sorts of things to kind of capture this, right? That we constantly rely on God for our obedience. At no stage, brothers and sisters, do we go, thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. Now I'll really strive to obey you. Now, the prayers and liturgies that flowed from the Reformation had this attitude all the way through them. Lord, I am totally dependent on you for salvation. I'm also totally dependent on you for obedience. By the power of your spirit, lift me above my weak self, please. Yes, we are to strive to obey the Sermon on the Mount as God's people, saved by grace, empowered by the Spirit. But I want to say the more important than our striving is our asking and our seeking and our knocking. And the giver of good gifts will give us the power we need to do unto others as we would have others do unto us. And I reckon only with that in place, that we are to work out our salvation, we are, to, we are to obey God, but never stop depending on God for our obedience. Only with that in place, we're ready to hear the strong challenge that follows. Our second point this morning, accept unpopularity. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Accept unpopularity. Verse 13 of chapter seven. Jesus goes on, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Despite its undeniable fame and widespread influence actually, the Sermon on the Mount is still the road less traveled. We've been seeing this, right? It's the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached some 2,000 years ago has significantly shaped Western culture. Many of the sayings of Jesus, we've been thinking about these over the past couple of months, many of the sayings of Jesus have kind of just been bought, we've bought them as a culture. They're kind of proverbial. They're idioms that we use all the time. But even still, it's the road less traveled. And the question that arises at this point is, are we happy to accept that? That, that living this grace-empowered, spirit-empowered life of living out the Sermon on the Mount, it's not well-traveled, and yet are we, are we happy to accept that? You know, apart from sociopaths, right, most of us are social creatures, Yeah? who like to know that we're not entirely in the minority. We fret, don't we, when we've got the minority position. We panic a little bit. We crave the affirmation of others. At least most of us do, right? Um, those on social media, I won't get you to put your hand up, but I am, right? Most of us on social media, you post something up and no one likes it. What happens? I, like, I freak out. I fret. What have I done? I post something on Facebook and everyone likes it. I'm like, ah, oh, that's good, I'm cool. You wake up one morning and you've lost 30 LinkedIn followers. I don't have that many, but you, you, know, you lose 30 LinkedIn followers. You go, what have I done? We're social animals, right? And we get anxious very easily when we adopt minority positions. And here's the thing, right? Our society is becoming less Christian if you kind of go by the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics kind of census data, because I'm a bit of a geek and I like numbers, I'm still waiting to see the results of the 2021 ABS census data. Anyone with me? Anyone? 
Anyone like hanging out for June 2022 when we have like a census release party? I don't know, something like that. No, maybe not. We haven't seen the 2021 data yet, but if you go back to 2016, the last one, there was the greatest decline in people who identified as Christians took place, right? It it just plummeted the number of people who identified as Christians in this country. On the other hand, the the number of people ticking no religion went through the roof, went from like 22% of Australians to 30% of Australians, massive increase. And if you listen to the pundits, all the people writing about this stuff, people are saying, see, the writing is on the wall for religion, yeah? The inevitable march of secularism is here, bam. There were articles in the newspaper all over the place going, we're losing our religion. Religion is dying. How does it make you feel? I've read articles by people who see these shifts and it's making them nervous. Because in a culture like ours, that is so enamored with popularity, the decline in the numbers of Christians in our country is put across like it's an argument, yeah? Some kind of logical argument. Aha, see, fewer Christians than five years ago. Therefore, well, therefore what? If you live in a popularity culture, right, it seems, therefore, Christianity is not as valid as it was five years ago, and so it's on its way out, and so on and so forth. And I mean, who wants to be unpopular? Anyone want to be unpopular? Who wants to be on the wrong side of history, as we're told more and more these days? Now, of course, Again, in a different setting, I'd point out in some detail that at a global level, it's actually no religion that is on the decline. Sure, here in Australia, no religion is on the rise, but according to the Pew Center, a research center in the US, right, they did a huge study not so long ago, it's actually secularism that is declining on the world stage. And of course, in Asia and in Africa, Christianity is continuing It's a boom. Um, I'll put a photograph of her on the screen. I think she's coming up. Yeah, there you go. This is Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, She wrote Confronting Christianity. Um, This is one of of my favorite books, right? Confronting Christianity. Rebecca McLaughlin, British-born, now lives in the States, writes out of the States, but she is just a brilliant writer. Um, And in one of the chapters in this book, she's um, in, uh, in this particular, she answers the question, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Um, She writes about just the explosion of the church, the gospel in in Asia and in in Africa. Um, Let me just read this little section for you. Um, I love this. Um, She says, conservative estimates in 2010, this is speaking about the rise of the church in China. Um, Conservative estimates in 2010 put China's Christian population at over 68 million And the number of Chinese Protestants has grown by an average of 10% annually since 1979. Um, Experts like Fen Yang predict that there will be more Christians in China than in the United States by 2030, and that China could be a majority Christian country by 2050. There's there's heaps more that she writes about that, but really great book. But just to say, you know, On the global scale, no religion is on the decline. Secularism is on the decline. In parts of our world, Asia, Africa, Christianity is booming. 
But to go down that track, right, would be to play the popularity game. And I don't want to play the popularity game at all. I want to say, who cares? I want to say, who cares? Now, at one level, I care. At one level, we care. We feel a kind of salvation responsibility, don't we, for the thousands of people who live in this city, just 10-minute drive from our church location here. We feel that. I feel that. I want all of the 100,000 or so people who live within 10 minutes of our church location here to, by God's grace, repent and believe and find life in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm hoping that all 100,000 people who live within 10 minutes will attend our Hope Explored course in May next month, yeah? I don't know where to put them, but I'm hoping we'll meet a lot of them. And they'll, over three weeks, over some beautiful food and some nice coffee, hear the good news and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't want us to ever confuse popularity with validity. I don't want to play that game. You know, here Jesus is saying what we often say to our children and maybe what you've heard from time to time from your parents. Don't follow the crowd, yeah? Don't just do what all your friends do. Jesus is saying the same to us. The crowd is often wrong. The few are often right. And even when the gospel is screamingly popular, as it is in some parts of our world today, as it has been in parts of the West historically, sure. But I don't want us to ever think that popularity means validity. Jesus begins to bring his Sermon on the Mount to a close. He challenges his disciples not only to ask for obedience, the power and strength to live out his vision for the good life, for our joy and for the joy and good of others and the glory of God, but he also wants us to accept unpopularity, which feeds straight into the third and final challenge. Be careful who you listen to. Verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. When Jesus says there, verse 15, watch out for false prophets, um, the term for prophet uh, that Jesus uses there um, doesn't really mean a a predictor of the future, um, the way we might think of or use the word today. No, prophet was used um, to describe popular preachers, um, of, the, of the day. Um, so many um, preachers of the day were called prophets, including Jesus, actually. So if you read the Gospels, um, from time to time, you know, they'll, they'll be, the, the crowd will sort of say, oh, Jesus, he's a prophet, um, a preacher. And we know, actually, quite a few other prophets or preachers of the day, um, you know, preachers and prophets of the, you know, the, days le- you know, the decades leading up to Jesus and the decades kind of shortly after. One of the most famous of these kind of prophet preachers was a guy named Judas of Gamla um, who preached in this place. Probably looked a bit different back then, right? Um, but this is the, the synagogue in Gamla um, and you can still go there uh, today. Um, 
Judas of Gumla, um, he was this incredibly influential uh, prophet, preacher, influential when Jesus was a boy, um, and he was known for preaching a message which could be summarized as this, no ruler but God. Yeah, that was his, that was his message, no ruler but God. He said that God was number one. We cannot accept the Roman authorities, right? So he, with that message, led this massive rebellion against the Romans who were occupying Jerusalem and most of the world at that time. Um, and, and this huge rebellion broke out and the Romans then crushed it. And the interesting thing, right, Judas's sons and grandsons, who were all contemporaries of Jesus, were also popular preachers of their father and grandfather's message, right? No ruler but God. And when Jesus says, watch out for false prophets, we don't know for sure that he's got Judas and his sons and his grandsons in mind, but I can well imagine he would because the message that they proclaimed bore a particular kind of fruit. Their message was that God's kingdom would come with a tornado of violence and judgment against Rome and that we need as God's people to take up arms and and then Jesus says, watch out. Look at their fruit. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes or thorn from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Our Old Testament reading that Izzy brought first, Isaiah chapter 5 was I think the one where Jesus got the idea of good and bad fruit from as he says these things. Isaiah offers a parable of of the Lord looking for good fruit from his vineyard, vineyard being Israel, his chosen people. But Isaiah reports that the Lord only found bad fruit. Isaiah concludes the Lord looked for justice but only found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard only cries of distress. It's this that Jesus has in mind when he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The fruit of Judas, this prophet preacher at Gamla, was violence, couched in zeal and love for the Almighty. It's bad fruit when compared to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's the point. Compared to the Sermon on the Mount with its love for enemies, do good to those who hate you, turn the other cheek, refuse to condemn others, blessed are the peacemakers and all that stuff. The teaching of Judas of Gumla led to bad fruit, which will be cut down and thrown into the fire, to borrow Jesus' language there in verse 19. Well, what about us? What about us? We don't live with Judas of Gumla necessarily around us. What about us? We have our own prophets, don't we? Um, Some of them are Christian. Some of them are just, you know, sort of members of the world. Um, Just think of the famous Christian preachers or authors or songwriters around the world. We fill our heads with that stuff. You know, for others, the, the prophets are probably more like, I don't know, journalists we read, podcasters we listen to. The news outlets we subscribe to or the old-fashioned magazines that we kind of flick through from time to time. We fill our heads with this stuff. And Jesus urges us to test their fruit, whether they, what they say bears the fruit of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Interestingly here, one thing that jumped out to me this week was it's, it's not the, a theological test as much. So if we were preaching on a different part of the Bible, um, you know, you, you apply theological tests to what church leaders and things are saying. But here Jesus' point is you judge these prophets, these influences by their fruit. The fruit of the life of the Sermon on the Mount. The degree to which their teaching promotes peacemaking, truth-telling, sexual integrity, love of enemies, non-violence, charity to the poor, the shunning of religious hypocrisy, the rejection of worldly materialism. That's the test. And yet every day we fill our heads with alternative voices and then we wonder why the alternative voices seem more tangible than Jesus. Hours and hours of alternatives and an hour or two spent at church once a week or once a fortnight to give the true average. And we wonder why Jesus seems distant. Why his vision for the good life seems a little bit hazy and the vision that the world gives us is really clear. I don't know, for some of us, right, the alternative voices are Christian preachers, authors and singers. For others, it's talk show hosts, YouTubers, podcasts, Fairfax or Murdoch journalists, our favourite feeds that we trawl through on socials. But the thing is, right, we are shaped by what we absorb. We're shaped by what we absorb. So testing the prophets, watching out is crucial. Now, I'm not saying, brothers and sisters, that we shouldn't listen to a range of voices. I, I actually believe we should and we must listen to those, like a whole range of voices. I think it's really crucial and important. But we must do it with our critical Christian faculties on, yeah, engaged. And I do believe we should reconsider the sheer volume of stuff that we put in our heads. Now, by the way, I don't, mean that we should you know read as much bible as we read or listen to all the other stuff right i am of the view that the word of christ is so powerful that just 10 that will give you 10 10 minutes a day with your head in the word of god will blow out of the water all the other voices that you come across i'm convinced just 10 minutes a day that is my money back guarantee this morning, yeah? 10 minutes a day with your word in the, your head in the word of Christ is more than enough to put into perspective eight hours of everything else. Give it a, give it a go. Give it a go this week, 10 minutes a day. Blow out of the water. Eight hours of everything else. That is how powerful the word of God is. But the thing is, if we aren't putting our head in the word of God at all, it shouldn't surprise us that we're not being shaped by the word of Christ, yeah? I don't mean to offend anyone in saying this, but I believe I will offend everyone in what I'm about to say. If, if you watch Sky News and like the Bolt Report every single night of the week, and only give the Lord every second Sunday, you're not going to be shaped by the Sermon on the Mount. You're not going to be shaped by Jesus' vision for the good life. 
Andrew Bolt Sky News' perspective is going to seem really tangible. And to annoy the other half, if you're the kind of person who, I don't know, devours the Finn Review, the Australian, or the Guardian every day, and hardly read the scriptures in the morning, then of course the gospel of secular humanism is going to seem more real and tangible than the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes? We're shaped by what we fill our heads with. If you're the kind of person who you know, will read way more Marie Claire or Vogue magazine or House and Garden or Better Homes and Gardens, whichever one you want, you're going to start to think that North Adelaide lifestyle is normal and taking up your cross and following Jesus is weird, yeah? And I could keep going, but I've probably offended everyone. I, I just want to conclude by saying this. Jesus has given us the keys to living by his vision. He's given us the keys to living by his vision, painted here for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Firstly, brothers and sisters, ask for obedience. Ask for it. Plead with God daily. Change me, lift me, empower me by the Holy Spirit to live beyond my very ordinary, selfish self. Because God's grace is not simply only the way into God's kingdom, it's the air we breathe in the kingdom. We enter the kingdom by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go on in the kingdom only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's ask God to help us live out this Sermon on the Mount for our joy, for the good of those around us and the glory of God. And brothers and sisters, secondly, accept unpopularity, yeah? Just decide today, I'm going to be unpopular. How about that? There'll be a support group for us over here after church. Just accept it. Just decide that you will not care how popular or unpopular Christianity is. You know, if you're the last person standing on planet Earth following Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you know what? It doesn't change the truth of it. It is still good and true and beautiful and relevant. Truth is not a fashion contest. And finally, let's all be really careful about who we listen to because we're shaped by what we fill our heads with. And I genuinely believe if you give the word of God 10 minutes a day, it is more than enough to put everything into perspective that you could hear in any given day. Let's pray. Let's pray. So Lord, we do pray Uh, that you would write this wisdom in our hearts by your spirit. We confess that we have fallen so far from your way. We are poor in spirit, but we do long to bear good fruit. Father, we long to live for what we are made for, this vision of life that Jesus has given. So we pray in the power of the spirit, Father, would you enable that? Help us to live in this world that you've created according to your vision, come what may. Father, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to be a people who um, desire to live out this vision of Jesus. Help us to be obedient. Father, we pray 
that you'd help us to not be a people who are driven by whether we are popular or not, but be a people that are driven by truth and love. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to listen to you. Father, as we live in this world, may your voice be the most powerful, the strongest in our lives. And Father, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name, our teacher, our saviour and our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.